Well, now, good afternoon. It's been good morning for the last several services. You're the sleepers, aren't you? I know sleepers when I, uh, when I see them. I'm a sleeper, too. Uh, I could, uh, I'd, I'd be at this service if I was a, a member of this church. I am, by the way, I love coming to this church. I, I have a real affection for you, which might be creepy, but, um, <laughs> but actually I really do. I, I feel such a synergy uh, to this community, and uh, I'm always delighted to be asked to, to come and be part of what you're doing, and so I, I, I really I thank you for the chance to uh, come and, and be with you this morning. Um, 20 years ago, my wife Ann and I were given two tickets to what was then the highly anticipated Paul McCartney concert at Madison Square Garden. It was the first time in 20 years since the, uh, the band Wings had broken up that Paul McCartney was on tour. And so it was a really big, big deal. I cannot begin to tell you how excited I was to get these seats. Number one, I'm a musician. I love melody and song and lyric. And who can, listen, who can mess with the Beatles for, for melody? Come on! That's crazy good. And you know, one song uh, after another, right? I mean, they're just amazing. The second reason that um, I was excited was because really the Beatles wrote the soundtrack to my childhood. Do you know what I mean? Some of you don't, and I'm resentful, but I, I really do. I, I mean, they were the soundtrack to my childhood. And so this was a big thing for me to go see Paul McCartney. Um, so we arrived at Madison Square Garden. The, uh, the friends who gave it, the tickets to us had, had won them at an auction. and, and just hand it. So we didn't know where we were sitting or what we were doing. We get there, and I hand it to the usher, and he goes, oh. And he takes me down onto the floor with my wife, and he walks us to the 10th row, dead center. And then you know what they do? They wipe off the seat for you. <laughs> they don't do that in the bleachers, kids, right? He wipes off the seats for us, you know. And I'm looking up at the stage and I'm thinking, this is amazing. Like, he's not going to sweat on me, you know? This is going to be fantastic. Well, before the show starts, they have these three giant screens up on the stage. And on the two side screens, they're running news footage of what was happening in the world starting in 1964 when the Beatles first came to America. And they were going year by year by year, right? Starting in 1964. Concurrently, in the middle screen, they were running year by year by year what was happening in the life of Paul McCartney and the Beatles in each of those years. And so you watch the evolution of the band. And as the, the, the film goes on, it's getting faster and faster and faster. So it's going 64, 65, 66, 67, all the way up until they get to 1990, which is when the, the concert uh, uh, took place. And suddenly the lights go bang, they go black. And 1990s flashing on all the screens. 1990, 1990, 1990. And suddenly... A lone light hits the side of the stage where Paul McCartney is standing, walking out in this triumphant entrance. 
Now, I, I have a confession to make. Do you remember the footage of the girls in 1964 screaming at the Beatle concerts? Do you, do you remember that footage, right? Me. I am standing on my seat going, Paul, I love you. I love you. I love you so much. Right? And I'm like, I'm crying. My wife is trying to get me down on the floor, back in my seat. I'm like, leave me alone. Then they start with Hard Day's Night. I'm now throwing my undergarments on the stage. Okay? I am like, I am a man as out of control as I have ever been. It was really um, a night to remember. I am, um, I, our text today has nothing to do with that story. No, it does. Um, our text today shows us a different kind of triumphant entrance one that could not be more different than the one I just described of Jesus coming on, I mean, of Paul McCartney coming onto the stage at Madison Square Garden. In fact, this text, by the way, if you read your Bible, it is called the triumphant entry. It's Jesus coming into the city of Jerusalem on the feast of the Passover. Now, let me just, by way of background, help set the stage for you. The city of Jerusalem is teeming with people. We're told by historians that this smallish city, during the, the, the Passover, swelled by hundreds of thousands of people who came to be part of the Passover celebration. Jesus is now at the height of his celebrity. He has just raised Lazarus from the dead, which was worthy of a lot of press. And so people are really coming out. They're feverish to see this person whom they believe, listen to me, is the Messiah. The Messiah. That Jesus was the person that they've been waiting for for generations. I know that many of you know this to be the case. In Jesus' time, Palestine was an occupied territory, right? The Romans were occupying that part of the world, as most of the world, and their presence was deeply resented by the Jews. They believed that the role of the Messiah, his mission, was to politically and militarily free them from the oppression of the Romans. You know, by the way, you know that the Jews did not expect that the Messiah was going to be God, right? Nobody expected that. It was a fairly big revelation after the resurrection that this was not a normal Messiah. Even the disciples never figured this out until after the resurrection. They thought it was just going to be a political figure anointed by God to restore the throne of David. Now we're told that as Jesus comes into the city, what are they, what are they doing? They're waving palms. You ever wonder why they're waving palms? What's that? That palm trees, yes, they're waving palms. Why? The palm was the national symbol of the nation of Israel. Palm branches were to Jews what the American eagle is to Americans. It actually was on their currency. In essence, for Jews to be waving palms in a parade was just like us on the 4th of July, waving little flags. 
So as Jesus comes into town, what are these people doing? They're quoting Psalm 118, which is a fiery text about God conquering the enemies of Israel. First, they call out the word Hosanna. Anybody know what it means? You don't, do you? Many of you have been going to church for 200 years. You still don't know what Hosanna means. Actually, neither did I until I had to remind myself uh, this week as I was looking at this text. It means give salvation now. They were not talking about spiritual salvation. They were talking about political and social salvation. They call out, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Again, Psalm 118, it's referring to the Messiah. They're begging him to be their Messiah. But there's another interesting clue uh, that these people believe Jesus was the Messiah. They actually, and this is fairly nervy, they actually add a sentence to Psalm 118. They say, blessed is the king of Israel. Listen, in short, you guys, this is a nationalistic political rally being held for Jesus as he rides into Jerusalem. They want him to lead a violent revolution to overthrow their oppressors. Now, um, here comes some Jesus judo. He throws a real curveball at them. You all know what an oxymoron is. You know that uh, an oxymoron is when you take two ideas or concepts that appear to be mutually contradictory, right? Like, um, and you, you put them together, like uh, jumbo shrimp would be an example of this, right? Or fat-free ice cream would be another example of an oxymoron. Now, traditionally, when a military hero uh, or a foreign dignitary came into the city of Jerusalem, they came on a huge steed. The horse was the symbol of, of greatness and celebrity, okay? Or they were brought into the city on a pallet, right? Being carried by soldiers or by slaves, this was a sign of um, a person's greatness, okay? Now, this is how everyone would have expected Jesus to come into Jerusalem. But what does he do? He shows up on a donkey. This is an oxymoron. Messiah, donkey. Donkey, Messiah. Now, look, this is like... Um, the president of the United States coming to do a parade in, in, in Summit, and he's coming down the road in a Chevy Nova, right? No limousines, no big black Suburbans like all the cool cats ride in. It's just, he's in a pacer. You remember the pacer? Some of you don't. I'm bitter. But he's in a pacer. He's waving his hand. You'd be like, what? That's how Jesus comes into the city of Jerusalem. What's he up to? He's messaging. Jesus is sending a message. By riding this lowly donkey into town, Jesus was saying, you don't really know who I am. You have no idea who I am. You think that I am a political king, a military revolutionary, that I've come to liberate you from sociopolitical bondage, but that's not true. I've come to free you from your bondage to sin. I have come to repair your fractured relationship with the Father and to inaugurate a revolution 
Not of violence, but of love. So if you were going to analyze the problem of the people lining the street that day, it's really simple. They were asking Jesus to be someone he wasn't. They were imposing or projecting onto him uh, a role or an identity predicated on their own needs and desires and convictions. And my question for us this afternoon is do we continue today to ask Jesus to be someone he isn't in order to gratify the desires and the needs of our own hearts? Obviously, the answer is, I think, yes, or we'd have to conclude the sermon right now. So let me maybe just sort of throw out a few ideas to you. Some years ago, there was a very important book by a guy named Reef. Um, it was called The Triumph of the Therapeutic. And the title really describes what the book's about. What he said is that in contemporary Western culture, we've become compu- really completely psychologized or brought under the spell of the psychotherapeutic. We have an obsession with self that has led us astray. Princeton sociologist Robert Wuthnow puts it like this. It's a great quote. At one time, theologians argued that the purpose of humankind was to glorify God. Now it has been reversed. The chief purpose of God today, it seems, is to glorify humankind. Spiritually, spirituality no longer is true or good because it meets absolute standards of truth or goodness, but because it helps me get along. I am the judge of its worth. If it helps me find a vacant parking space, I know my spirituality is on the right track. If it leads me into the wilderness, calling me to face dangers I would rather not deal with at all, then it is a form of spirituality I am unlikely to choose. Wuthnow is saying that the church itself has fallen under the spell of the psychotherapeutic. And by the way, I don't have anything against therapy. I've had more therapy than Woody Allen. I think I've said that to you guys before. And I am a, I'm a therapist. I mean, I have a master's in psychotherapy, so it's not like i got anything against it. But it seems to me that we've now trivialized Jesus by making him into the God of my comfort who will, make, who will sort of help me get what I want, a Jesus who will make us happy. One that will assuage our anxieties, love on us. And rather than understanding Jesus as the savior of the world, we begin to relate to him like he is a divine therapist whose number one task is to prop up our egos and the projects of our egos. Look, you know what? I'm, you know, I'm moving to Nashville in a couple of months. By the way, Nashville's different than here. I just found that out the last time I was there. Like, for example... There were things that made me nervous, like I was driving down a road in in Nashville. This is completely off script, which is bad, because when I go off script, I usually never find my way back. But I was driving down a road, and one of the street names off of this road was Yankee Retreat Highway. (laughs) That can't be good, you know? 
Like, I could get hung here, you know? Like, they're going to go, hey, who's a smart kid from New York? I mean, this is, you know, it could, may not be a good thing. But they have like one, there are more churches in Nashville than there are banks in New York. Really, they're just everywhere. There are churches everywhere. On Franklin Road in Nashville, there are four mega churches. I mean, churches of like 10,000, 15,000 people, four of them directly next door to each other on Franklin Road. There are more Christians on Franklin Road than there are in five states of New England. I mean, they're everywhere. I mean, it's really, it's terrible. It's also highly inefficient, but that's a different issue. I went to one of these churches, and um, one of the things I really like about this church is they don't make this error, but I went to uh, one of these churches while I was there, and I'm listening to the worship music at uh, this church, and it suddenly dawns on me that the Jesus they're describing sounds more like the perfect boyfriend than the savior of the world. Have you ever, I mean, do you know what I'm talking about? Like the lyrics to these songs make it sound like, you know, he's always there for me. He's always forgiving me. Whatever I do, he takes me back. He holds me in his arms, blah, blah, blah. (laughs) Do you know what I'm talking about? It's all about me. Jesus is there for me. He takes care of all my needs. It sounds more like we don't want to worship him. It sounds like we want to make out with him. I mean, it's disturbing. It's erotic kind of lyric. We want a Jesus whose primary mission is to help us get along, whose role is to help us cope with the vagaries and uh, the pain of daily life. We stand on the, ro- on the roadside and we wave our palm and we cry out, God of my comfort, come and bring me happiness and pleasure and, and solace in the midst of the travails of life. And by the way, I just, I hate to tell you this, but that is asking Jesus to be something that he is not. That is a Jesus who is nothing more than a projection of our egos, an extrapolation of our desires. You know, um, if I were to bring Christians here from China or Nigeria or other countries where followers of Jesus are being violently persecuted today, they would not recognize the Jesus of America. They wouldn't recognize him. They would say, where did you get that insipid God who seems fixated on you? Now let me say something that is actually really controversial. (laughs) You're all thinking, man, I'm glad I came today. I'm really getting just what I need. (laughs) Um, So let me say this. Jesus is fundamentally not interested in your happiness. He cares actually very little about your happiness. He cares about your goodness and your holiness and the development and the ennobling of your soul even in the midst of your greatest pain. I have met more people who came to the church who were persuaded when they got there that Jesus was all about taking care of their needs and when a child died or a divorce came or pain came into their lives, 
they felt ripped off and left because we told them about a Jesus who simply doesn't exist. Jesus is uh, inviting you and I to participate in a revolution of love. If Jesus is only about our happiness, then people like Martin Luther King don't make sense. So, if I've already stepped on your toes, cross your legs, I'm going to get the other one. I don't know about you guys, um, but I'm really disturbed um, about the uh, current political and social environment where things are becoming dangerously vitriolic and polarized. I mean, I don't know about you, but is that bugging any of you? Like, I'm freaking out about it a little bit. You know, I turn on the news, and I'm a little freaked out, to tell you the truth. And this is what freaks me out. Have you noticed how, especially in the last 10 years, but even now, how each political party implies that Jesus has given them his personal endorsement? Jesus is on their side. Um. By the way, this is an equal opportunity uh, sermon in regards to offending people. So I'm not just talking about conservatives or liberals here. I'm talking about everybody, okay? But I did happen to note the other day on a news channel, cable news channel, I was stunned. I'm watching a guy on this thing, and of course they all yell at each other. Nobody's actually talking to each other. It's whoever, whoever yells the loudest wins, Right? I mean, have you ever seen when they have five guys up on the screen at once and they're all yelling at once? It's like, hey, that's helpful. I'm learning a lot here. Well, they got this guy on the, on the, on the, on the TV, and here's what he says. He says that Christians and pastors who promote social justice are not only liberals, but they're Nazis and communists. That's a quote. Nazis and communists, and that they should be reported to church authorities and removed from the pulpit. That's a little kooky, isn't it? And this mixing of politics and religions, by the way, or the mixing of politics and religions, this is nothing new. This is not an American innovation. In fact, in Jesus' age, all the big political and spiritual movements wanted his endorsement. There were a bunch of them. John the Baptist was the leader of what group? The Essenes, right? They wanted Jesus' endorsement. The Herodians wanted Jesus' endorsement. The Zealots, Judas' party, they wanted Jesus' endorsement. The Pharisees and the Sadducees wanted Jesus' endorsement. In part, dear friends, listen to me. Jesus was crucified because he refused to give any of them his endorsement. The Jews in our text are trying to co-opt Jesus. They are saying, Jesus, be the God of our political cause, our social cause, and then, as a result, they missed who he really was. They missed who he was. Listen, no political party exclusively embodies the values of the kingdom of God. Jesus, in his time, was a great political disappointment. And if we want him to get behind our political interests, he will disappoint you as well.
He's not interested. That's not who he is. He won't do it. And when we participate in that exercise, we are politically weaponizing the gospel. And history has proven that whenever we blur the lines between our political allegiance and our religious faith, politics will always bully and win over religion. Ask Billy Graham. Ask, about, ask Billy Graham and his relationship with Richard Nixon. Who won? I mean, you can just go through all of history and see this. Politics always trump religion. And we have to figure out how to prioritize our loyalties. Are we first citizens of the United States or citizens of the kingdom of God? Of what kingdom are you a primary resident and citizen of? But just like in the triumphant entry in the Bible of Jesus into Jerusalem, so many of us are standing around waving our palms or our flags and crying out, Jesus, be the God of my political cause. Now look, I'm not saying that your spiritual convictions should not insinuate themselves or influence your political thoughts and ideas and beliefs. Nor am I saying that there isn't room for religious discourse inside of um, the political realm. What I'm saying is that whenever we try to make Jesus the champion of our political cause or politics, we're asking him to be something that he will not be for us. We are trivializing him. Lincoln once said something amazing. He said, the question isn't, is God on our side? The question is, are we on God's side? And the big point of this whole message today is that when we ask Jesus to be someone or something he isn't, all we are doing is fashioning an idol and putting his name on it. Whether it's in our personal lives or our civil lives. So, in closing, who is Jesus? Jesus is the savior of the world. He is the inaugurator of a great revolution of love. And he is inviting you and I to participate in the reclamation of this broken and fallen world. That's who he is. And not by force, but through weakness. Not by violence, but by powerlessness. Not through arrogance, but through humility. If we're going to experience any life-transforming power of God, then we must let Jesus be who he is versus who we prefer him to be. So, is the Jesus you worship who he is or the Jesus you want him to be? Have you befriended the Jesus who transcends all of the things in our lives, our happiness, our projects of our ego, our politics? Or is he something that we've made which is less than that? N.T. Wright, the great uh, Anglican scholar and uh, theologian, says this. The way to Christian growth is to allow oneself to be puzzled 
and startled by a new apparent complexity. There is great simplicity at the heart of this picture, but it is costly. Is it, after all, Jesus we want to discover, or would we prefer an idol of our own making? Let's pray. Well, God, I'm grateful that your word, your story is disturbing. It is destabilizing. It is confusing. It is maddening. It makes us be filled with joy and also filled with ire at times. And I pray that we have felt all of those things today, this morning. I pray that we leave here scratching our heads, turning to our friend or a spouse or a child and say, well, now what do we do? And I pray, Father, we worship you, your son, for who you really are and not for who we want you to be triumphantly enter our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.